Nursing was never portrayed to be an easy profession, but right now everyone is talking about going to work in a hospital or healthcare system as if they are going to war. Challenges facing the clinical workforce today on HFMA's Voices in Healthcare Finance podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Erica Grotto. In today's episode, I sit down with two nursing leaders to discuss recruitment, retention, and the ever-present burnout in the nursing profession. I will welcome my guests in a moment, but first I'd like to bring in our Beyond the News team, Senior Editor Nick Hutt and Policy Director Sean Stack to tell us what's happening in the industry this week. Hey everybody, this is Nick Hutt. In this week's news segment, we wanted to talk about the final rule for the inpatient prospective payment system. As many of our listeners know, October 1st is the start of the federal fiscal year. And in healthcare, that means new payment rates and policies taking effect for inpatient care. Now, one of the larger impacts to reimbursement for hospitals is the estimated $1.1 billion reduction in Medicare uncompensated care payments That's going to need to be planned for over the next year, and it will take effect while most providers continue to struggle with increased expenses from the pandemic. So, Sean, very happy to be able to talk to you about these developments. What's your take? That's right, Nick. For some hospitals whose communities continue to struggle with high uninsured rates, that decrease in uncompensated care could compound significant financial strains that many hospitals are still feeling. Even though the rule finalized the extension of add-on payments for COVID-19 treatments for eligible products through the end of the fiscal year, when the federal public health emergency is supposed to end, many providers continue to struggle with covering increased expenses, reduction in hospital resources, and of course, staffing burnout. And they wonder if additional extensions to the federal PHE are going to be made in the face of this never-ending pandemic. Yeah, so certainly it's a daunting time financially for hospitals, and it remains to be seen just what kind of impact this has. It does bear mentioning that hospitals recently lost a case in federal district court where they had challenged the relatively new methodology for determining uncompensated care payments. The court actually issued a summary judgment in favor of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Now, there were some accommodations Due to the pandemic, many of Medicare's quality programs and demonstrations are going to be subject to a new suppression policy that accounts for the impacts of COVID-19. Sean, do you believe that this will provide financial and administrative relief for providers? Yeah, Nick, I certainly believe that Medicare's decision to use these suppression metrics, which have been the metrics that have been impacted by COVID, will provide some well-needed relief for many providers. The hospital readmissions program saw five measures suppressed for 2022. The value-based purchasing program saw seven suppressed. And then the hospital acquired conditions reduction program has been set at a net neutral for 2022, meaning that anything that the hospital pays into the program will be returned to make them whole. Gotcha. And we should also note that even though the weights of the measures impacted by COVID-19 will be suppressed, Medicare does still plan to send out information-only reports to hospitals and providers, letting them know about their performance during the pandemic. Yeah, I agree, Nick, that those reports are going to be very, very important for hospitals when reviewing and strategizing, you know, what happened post-pandemic. 
And another item we wanted to touch on is that CMS delayed the finalization of policies surrounding indirect medical education and the distribution of the newly appointed residency positions to providers. That's a decision that Medicare intends to address in a separate forthcoming rule, according to what the agency has said. That's right, Nick. That is something that providers and healthcare stakeholders will want to pay very close attention to in the upcoming months. Given that the new residency positions at stake are much needed right now in healthcare and the impact this policy could most definitely have on additional funding and assignment for more Medicare residency positions in the future, which I anticipate will likely happen given the shortage of clinicians in the U.S. right now. All right. Well, Sean, great insights as always. And, and thanks to everybody for listening. HFMA members can get much more information on what's important to know about the IPPS for FY22 by checking out our in-depth summary of the final rule, which is available in the regulatory resources section of HFMA.org. And listeners, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to hear from Nick and Sean in every single episode. I'd like to turn now to our discussion about the future of the nursing profession. And to start, I have some relevant research to share. You might have seen earlier this year HFMA's report on the CFO of the future, which was the first installment of our Healthcare 2030 series. The second installment comes out in October and deals with the workforce of the future. That installment is based on a survey we conducted of more than 140 healthcare CFOs in June and July. 94% of respondents to that survey said it's getting harder to find qualified clinical workers. And the comments from respondents about their greatest workforce training and development needs show a lot of concern about the future of the clinical workforce, especially in nursing. My guests today are Joyce Fitzpatrick, a nurse and director of the Marion K. Shaughnessy Nurse Leadership Academy at the Francis Payne Bolton School of Nursing at Case Western Reserve University, and Robin Begley, CEO of the American Organization for Nursing Leadership and the Chief Nursing Officer for the American Hospital Association. They came to discuss the challenges facing nurses today and how to find a way forward. You'll hear from Joyce Fitzpatrick first after my question. Despite warnings that burnout caused by the pandemic could be driving people away from careers in healthcare, the American Association of Colleges of Nursing found that enrollment in nursing programs at all levels, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral, actually increased in 2020. And I will post a link to that study in the show notes. In a survey conducted in the fall of 2020, the association also found that thousands of qualified applicants are being turned away due to a shortage of clinical sites, faculty, and resource constraints. So I'm curious, given both of these things that this research found, does it track with what you both have observed? And how do the numbers of people entering nursing programs compare with the current industry need? Certainly, we have seen an increase in enrollment in first-degree programs, meaning the preparation of new nurses. And it was close to 6% for baccalaureate-prepared nurses, as noted by the ACN report uh, of enrollments in 2020. 
the on the ground experience is that that might have even increased in 2021. We're hearing that many schools have seen a significant increase in enrollment in their baccalaureate programs, meaning the preparation of new nurses in 2021. We don't have the data yet as to overall national enrollments in schools of nursing, but we should have those shortly. The important thing to note, however, uh, is that the demand is greater than the increase in enrollment for several reasons. And particularly if we project out five or 10 years, when we anticipate a, a retirement of a large number of currently practicing nurses, because nurses as a group are on average uh, about 48 years old. So if you think forward, there is going to be a large number of nurses who will be retiring and our enrollments are not keeping up with the, that percentage. Another note is that, of course, uh, as indicated in the AACN study and the AACN report, there's certainly a difficulty recruiting faculty. So if you don't have enough faculty, you cannot expand your program. So the real shortage and the real pipeline blockage is with the recruitment of faculty. So we need to fast track individuals into faculty roles. And that means increasing the number of nurses in master's and doctoral programs at a faster rate than we're currently doing that. I would concur with Joyce. And as Joyce said, that the demand is currently outpacing the supply. What we know is right now, um, there's approximately 3.7 million nurses in the U.S. And because in large part of the retirements that are expected over the next eight to 10 years, you know, baby boomers who are very deserving of their retirement, that the number that one of our noted healthcare nursing economist, Peter Beerhouse, states is that between now and 2029, we will need almost 200,000 new graduate nurses per year. Um, right now, you know, the end of August, we are very concerned about not only the planned retirement of nurses, but also um, the effect that the pandemic will have on younger nurses who uh, we need desperately to stay in nursing. And, you know, because of things like stress and PTSD in relationship to what they've experienced over the past 18 months, we're very concerned that some of these younger nurses may be leaving direct patient care for sure and perhaps leave nursing altogether. Robin, I'm glad you mentioned Peter Bearhouse. I just this morning was talking with another editor here who's working on a piece about the future of the workforce in healthcare and had an interview with him, as a matter of fact. So I've got that pulled up. I had him, I asked him to send it to me um, just in case there was something in there that would inform our discussion today. And he had a quote in here that I think is relevant, especially to, to the discussion of the baby boomers leaving the workforce and new people coming in, whether there is enough of those new people or not. But what he said was, 
this is his quote, while we've got a lot of nurses coming into the workforce, by no means can they replace the work of the baby boomers because they don't have the knowledge, the experience, the organizational know-how. So it seems like it's not just numbers, it's years of experience and knowledge that, that could be an issue too. Exactly. That is a great point. So not only are we worried about the numbers, but we call it the brain drain. And, you know, nurses with many years of experience, um, it's very hard to replicate that, particularly with new nurses. They have skill sets that we don't expect a novice nurse who is graduating and entering the workforce to have. I'm curious what your thoughts are on on how we make a way forward from where we are now. What are some steps that healthcare organizations could take or maybe some things that need to happen industry-wide to better the situation that we're in? Well, I think some of the work that's underway already, Erica, are things like joint collaboration, academic practice partnerships in many areas of the country. The healthcare organizations are working with the colleges to make sure that there is a tight transition plan, recognizing that, you know, as Joyce mentioned, some of the graduating new nurses may not have had the clinical experience or the hands-on experience in the hospital setting or other healthcare settings. And, you know, actively developing plans to make sure that we don't overwhelm these new practitioners entering you know, the, the clinical setting. And there's actually in, in Virginia, I know there's innovations planned with the last semester of nursing students. So really to be able to transition even prior to graduation. You know, as Joyce mentioned earlier, the issue of faculty and, you know, having enough and having them being paid appropriately has been a concern. And this is another area where some healthcare organizations and, you know, are reaching out and offering some of their educationally prepared masters and, you know, doctoral nurses to be able to work together with faculty to enhance the education of the nursing students that are getting ready to graduate. I think it's a problem. We can't just look to education and academia to solve. I mean, we practice side needs to work very closely with our colleagues in academia. And I believe that there are many situations where that is already occurring in anticipation of what is really very challenging staffing, you know, during the pandemic, but also post. Well, and Robin, I think I think you're right on target. And what we know from the research pre-pandemic is that 20 to 40 percent of what nurses who work in hospitals do with their time was not direct professional nursing practice. And so it's a good time to look at new models of care delivery to make sure that nurses are conserving their time and energy for the care of patients, not doing things that could be done by supportive personnel. And so as we are dealing with these difficult times of staffing, um, the healthcare institutions are examining the way in which they're delivering care. And the team approach to care provision is one way that, you know, uh, is being considered. Let's talk about burnout. If you've checked social media even once in the last year and a half, you've certainly seen images of exhausting nurses posting about the pandemic. I know that when I have sought care personally or taken my children for care, I've seen it firsthand um, and it's 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 heartbreaking. 
Um, but burnout is not just a pandemic problem. It's something that has been discussed for a very long time. So what do you see as the most common causes of burnout among nurses and where can we find solutions? What can nurses do for themselves or their peers? What can their leaders do to ensure they're taken care of? And what should we be considering as an industry to address this larger issue? Burnout in workforce right now is probably the number one priority um, of all healthcare leaders, not just nursing leaders. We are hearing that from CEOs, from physicians. I mean, it is just pervasive right now. And as you noted, I mean, burnout was an issue prior to the pandemic. So it's only really been exacerbated and magnified by the pandemic. You know, this is one of the number one priorities at the American Hospital Association and AONL, along with our colleagues at ANA, AACN, you know, you name the, the nursing organization. This is, again, a major priority. You know, some startling statistics, and I think actually these came from, doc, from Dr. Beerhouse, 25% of CNOs are indicating that they are observing early career nurses announce that they are leaving the profession and 32% of the CNOs that were surveyed indicate their organization is seeing higher rates of nurse retirements than usual. So instead of the nurses maybe hanging in there a few more years until they reach perhaps 65, you know, we're seeing that they're retiring earlier. I believe that our double challenge of nurses who are earlier in their career saying, I'm going to leave nursing, but and also our you know, retirement age nurses perhaps saying, I'm going to leave a few years earlier, really is a direct result of what they've experienced in the past 18 months. And I think that all healthcare organizations, all nursing associations, et cetera, really need to, you know, all come together and unite behind a plan that will make the workforce a better place to be. We talk about resilience, and I think that's important. You know, nursing was never portrayed to be an easy profession, but right now everyone is talking about, you know, going to work in a hospital or healthcare system as if they are going to war. And we need to do everything we can to mitigate that. We also need to make it okay for nurses and other health professionals to reach out and say they are stressed and they need help. And there is still a bias in our culture against accessing mental health services. And we've heard that from nurses as well as from other health professionals, even though they know the stress that they're under they are still hesitant to access the resources. So I'd like to ask just one more quick question before we close. I would like to end on, on a hopeful note, on a positive note, on a let's get things improved note. So for the, the leaders who are listening to this podcast, I am sure they know nurses who are struggling. If they weren't convinced of the issues facing the nursing workforce before, certainly they have been by listening to this episode. So for those leaders who are listening and saying, I want to do something to improve things, what's the first thing they can do? What can they do right now today for the nurses who are working for them or who might be coming into their organizations to make sure they know they are cared for and supported by their employers? Leadership is about relationships. And so they have to model a relationship with the clinical staff who are working with them. 
They have to be by their side. They have to understand the stresses that the new nurses and the continuing nurses are experiencing and to walk by their side and to listen to them and support them. I couldn't agree with you more, Joyce. The one thing that came to mind as you were speaking is, you know, if I were listening to this podcast today, I would reach out to the chief nurse or one of the nursing leaders and express that you would like to make rounds with them. And not just round from a, you know, how are you doing perspective, but maybe even spend a little time perhaps walking in the shoes of a clinical nurse or spending a little time with the front line to really experience, you know, what they're going through or what their day's like. And I would totally agree with Joyce about relationships. So leadership really is about having those relationships. It takes the whole team to care for our patients appropriately. And that is our colleagues in finance, our colleagues in administration, other clinical disciplines. I mean, we need everyone. So to the extent that we can understand a little bit of their world, I think that that's really important. And that's, you know, the advice I would give. And if anybody listening is taking that advice, I want to hear what uh, what the outcomes were. What did you learn? I would love to follow up with this on this episode to hear about what what some people are are implementing in their organizations. So thank you so much, Joyce and Robin, for joining me on the podcast today. It's been an interesting conversation, some big challenges, but I'm hopeful that there will be some improvements coming. Well, thank you, Erica. Thank you, Erica. HFMA's annual conference in Minneapolis is just weeks away. I'll be there podcasting, so I hope you'll stop by the booth and say hello. In the last episode of our podcast, Katie Gilfillan from the annual conference team talked about some of the programming attendees can expect, but I thought it would be a good idea to cover some of the safety protocols we're taking as well. So at this time, I would like to welcome Katie back to the podcast to talk about this topic. Hi, Katie. Hi, Erica. Glad to be back. So first of all, I want to mention that we have two options for attending this year. We have a virtual option. We've had some really good virtual events over the last year and a half. So this is a really good option for those who can't travel. But for those who can and are excited to get back together in person, we are taking some important steps to ensure the safety of our attendees. Can you talk about those a little, Katie? Absolutely. Um, We are paying close attention to health and safety at our annual conference, and we want to make sure everyone who attends in person feels comfortable with their attendance and participation. So we're putting measures in place to assure that. And to do that, HMA has made the decision to require that everyone on site at the annual conference in Minneapolis including attendees, faculty, exhibitors, volunteer leaders, staff members, and backstage crew, all provide proof of COVID-19 vaccination. We're working on the logistics of that process and ensuring that it's easy and as convenient as possible. Additionally, the conference will adhere to the health and safety protocols and procedures of the Minneapolis Convention Center. And at this time, that includes the requirement that individuals who are medically able to tolerate a face covering, they are required to wear a face mask while in the convention center space. So this is in accordance with the city of Minneapolis and CDC guidance, regardless of vaccination status. 
HMMA staff and event planners are monitoring the COVID situation and guidance as it evolves, and we will continue to update these health and safety measures as needed to make sure that all attendees are able to enjoy the event safely. Once again, HFMA's annual conference will take place November 8th through 10th in Minneapolis. We are really excited and we hope you all are as well. If you want to learn more, head over to events.hfma.org annual, where you can learn about our speakers, our sessions, our tracks. And while you're there, go ahead and register. Thanks again for joining me, Katie. Thank you. Voices in Healthcare Finance is produced by the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is our Director of Content Strategy. Our President and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer, and you can hear him on our podcast next week. That's right, we've got an episode next week as he interviews Sergio Melgar, the CFO at UMass Memorial Healthcare. To hear that and all of our episodes, please subscribe to our show and maybe write us a review. And as always, if you want to get in touch with our team directly, please do. You can email us at podcast at hfma.org. My podcast editor is wonderful.